This is Hubonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston, to the public's seemingly contradictory demand for more government and low taxes. Congress has responded by giving us both, the result of spending $6.5 trillion this year, while taking in only $5 trillion in tax revenue, is a national debt that has ballooned to more than $32 trillion, costing Americans annually nearly $700 billion in interest payments and putting programs such as Social Security on a path for a reduction in benefits as soon as 2033. Of greatest concern is the fact that debt and deficit levels are accelerating, with no agreement on what a solution might look like. To tackle this historically intractable challenge, informed policymakers must contend with competing narratives about the source of the fiscal imbalance, one which blames revenue shortfalls on tax cuts for wealthy earners or corporations, and the other that asserts that record spending levels are to blame for record deaths. Independent of normative views on the preferred size of government, how can those voters concerned with the cost and consequence of deficits know which fiscal interventions might succeed if they do not understand where the problems lie? My guest today is Dr. Adam Michel, the Director of Tax Policies at Cato Institute. Dr. Michel has written extensively on the precipitous rise in our national debt and has analyzed how current levels of tax revenue and federal expenditures compare with historical averages over the past half century. Dr. Michelle will share with us his views on the size and source of our widening budget imbalance and suggest a path for fiscal sustainability that is effective and politically viable. When I return, I'll be joined by Cato Institute's Director of Tax Policy, Dr. Adam Michelle. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvagi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Cato Institute's Director of Tax Policies, Dr. Adam Michel. Welcome to Hubwonk, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Well, Adam, I'm thrilled to have you because uh, you're here to help me and our listeners uh, settle a very basic argument that comes off, up often on the nature of our current debt and deficit. Uh, it's a big issue. Uh, we now owe future taxpayers 32, I believe, $32.48 trillion. Uh, the annual cost of that debt in terms of servicing that debt is about $700 billion, not a small number. That's about the same size as our national defense budget. Uh, and as costly as this uh, debt is, uh, we can't completely agree where it came from. And of course, if you can't agree what, what causes debt, you can't agree on how to solve it. So I'm hoping uh, to tap into your expertise to give our listeners a sense of how did we get here? What are the real uh, drivers of this problem? And uh, of course, what might we be able to do to solve it? So let's start at the beginning uh, for our listeners. First, how did we get to $32 trillion in debt? Uh, starting with the, the simple questions. Um, so the, the really the answer is pretty, is pretty simple. It's that we have been spending significantly more money than Congress is willing to raise in, in tax revenue. The sort of 50 year, average of, of, of spending in relation to the size of the economy as a percent of GDP uh, has been about 21% over the last 50 years. Uh, we've been uh, taxing about 17.5% of the economy uh, over that same 50-year average. Uh, okay. And so the, that discrepancy is, is really what, what leads to deficits and then the accumulation of debt. So to oversimplify, the, the question is, if we look at taxes as the revenue for government and this 
spending is this, you know, the spending, we spend more than we take in each year. We spend a little more than we take in. You add up all those deficits and the grand total is, is the bill, the debt. So it grows every year. We spend more than we take in. Um, now and, we're, and it's, and it's punctuated. It's not just a, those sort of numbers fluctuate over time. So if you have a large uh, recession like 2008 or a, a pandemic, a global pandemic, and you spend a lot more money in those years, uh, you can sort of accumulate that debt even, even more quickly. So there's a background hum of something like 3% structural deficit, 3.5%, but there's events like uh, the global financial crisis that, that causes large spikes, uh, but they go away, but the background hum of deficits doesn't seem to really go away. Yeah. So we've got, it's, I mentioned $32 trillion, but we've got a massive economy. Now, 32 trillion is a 32 with 16 zeros behind it. It's a big number, but some would argue that relative to uh, the size of the economy, you know, effectively a $32 trillion economy, it really isn't that bad. How has our debt now relative to GDP compared with, let's say, years in the past? Is this ordinary or are we typically at 100% of GDP? <laughs> so, so it's certainly not ordinary. Uh, during the sort of World War II crisis and Great Depression, we uh, briefly got uh, debt as a share of the economy up above 100%, but it quickly fell back, uh, back down. Uh, and uh, and and the sort of diff what's different today is that that debt has been slowly accumulating over time and is projected to continue to accumulate for the sort of indefinite future, uh, rather than there being a political consensus that we need to get um, the size of the debt in relation to the economy back down to more manageable manageable levels. Currently, we're at ninety eight percent of uh, GDP debt as a share of GDP, and we're projected to grow significantly from there. All right, so we've got a problem that is current, but uh, projected in the future. We don't have any world wars that we're paying for. Uh, we're actually past our, um, you know, the thankfully past the spending associated with the pandemic. Are there any, you mentioned punctuated by extraordinary events. Right now, as we record, there are no extraordinary events that sort of would justify extraordinary deficits, not, not in 2023 at least. Uh, correct. However, the we, we can't, uh, forecast the future uh, perfectly, and the, the sort of you can't you can't foresee the next world war or the next global pandemic or the next financial crisis. And this is one of the one of the reasons it's so important to get the debt and the deficit back under control is uh, is we can't be running these structural deficits and accumulating debt at these levels, um, and then also uh, address whatever the next crisis is. That next crisis could potentially sort of break the system. Sure, I don't want to tempt the fates. We're not we're not asking for trouble. Uh, so as this, as we see it now, we don't see anything uh, catastrophic happening. Uh, but you mentioned historical levels of of revenue and historic levels of of spending. Uh, again, the debt. Uh, there's much debate on whether we have a spending problem or a taxing problem. Some would argue that this massive deficit is is a function of too much spending or not enough taxing. So let's compare where we are taxing now. You talked about historic, I, I think you mentioned over the past 50 years of something like uh, our tax um, rate. Uh, so the total amount of tax roll GDP has been about 17 and a half percent. Where is it now? Uh, are, are we are we indeed a deficit because we're taxing too little or, or, or are we about average? So currently, ta or I guess a in 2022, tax revenue was at a two decade high. Uh, and then this year, it's projected to come down a little bit to about a percentage point above the historical average. So tax revenue is above above average. The 
The problem is that spending is significantly above the historical average um, by, by, I believe, three percentage points and projected to continue to grow uh, um, from, from here. But so it's it's the I think the, the debate about what it caused the, the the current debt is one conversation, but it's the what's driving future debt is the more important conversation. And what's driving future debt is the continued uh divergence of spending continuing to climb and revenue also continuing to climb, but at a much slower rate. So just to put it, you know, I don't want to glaze over this. Uh, much has been blamed, uh, many on, perhaps on the left would say, the reason we have debts going forward, as you point out, we, let's not cry over spilled milk. Going forward, um, we're projected right now to have above average revenue, um, a full one percentage point above revenue, despite uh, past tax cuts, uh, Trump tax cuts or Bush tax cuts, we're tracking above historical revenue. So it's not reduced revenue. We've got let's say, increase revenue, at least now and projected into the future. Correct. For the next uh, three decades, the Congressional Budget Office projects that revenues will stay uh, well above the, the historical average of 17.5%, rising to um, about 19% um, in those sort of out years. Uh, and so the that that slow increase in tax revenue is just simply not matched by the precipitous rise in projected spending, rising from currently 24% um, to uh, just shy of 30% um, at the end of that 30-year that period. So going back 20 or 50 years, you said it, on average it's been about 21% of GDP. Now it's closer to 25% of GDP, projected to go up to 30% of GDP. These are extraordinary increases in, in spending. Again, uh, there's lots of narratives of where all that money is going. Um, you're the expert. You study this. What, in a sense, has stayed the same year to year? And what accounts for what appears to be large increases in, in revenue? I don't remember anyone saying, let's create a new program or let's you know build the Death Star or some project that would cost all this money. Where is all this new money going? So, so there are always new programs being created, but the big structural drivers of those uh, of increasing spending over time is coming from mandatory spending. And those mandatory programs are the Social Security, Medicare, uh, and Medicaid, and the sort of ACA uh, healthcare subsidies um, are, are often thrown in there as well. Those, those big pots of money account for almost 50% of the of federal spending, and they are projected to, and they are the, the primary driver of increased spending growth. Uh, over time. And those are, they're driven by demographic change. People are getting older um, from the sort of increasing cost of healthcare and the fact that we've just, pr we've promised benefits that grow faster than, than the economy. And those sort of that mix of things makes these promises ultimately unsustainable. One of the elements of, uh, I don't know which bucket it should go into. It certainly is non-discretionary. You have to pay the interest on that 32 trillion. So that's 700 billion. That ought to be added to the non-discretionary because I suppose you can't decide to default. At least I, I don't think you can. Uh, so of course, as the debt gets larger, so then does the debt servicing gets larger. So we'll add that to the pile. But let's take a deeper dive. Again, you analyze budgets uh, all day long. You mentioned, you characterize this as non-discretionary. Uh, is, does that mean that when we have these budget fights every year, the very high, highly um, publicized showdowns uh, threatened to default, are, are we even debating non-discretionary or, um, uh, or are we only arguing over that 
30, 40% that is discretionary, the, the small part of the pie in this case. Correct. Yeah. We, the, the annual budget conversation almost never touches on the, these mandatory programs. Uh, if you recall back to the State of the Union, um, whatever it was, uh, the most recent one that President Biden uh, gave, the, he said, let's, let's take the, these federal uh, mandatory spending programs completely off the table. And almost everyone in the chamber stood up and clapped. Uh, so there's sort of a bipartisan consensus in Washington that we sh- that we shouldn't be talking about these uh, these ongoing costs, but instead uh, the conversation always turns to things to these discretionary spending uh, uh, that is that is important, but is not the fundamental sort of driver making our budgets unsustainable. So to put this uh, sort of this one element of the argument to rest, the what's driving the increase in spending has little or nothing to do with discretionary, meaning defense or welfare spending do not seem to be breaking the back of government. Those are growing at really relatively small. I think the, the latest in negotiation was they, they're growing smaller than the rate of uh, inflation. So they're actually shrinking in, in real terms. That's not what's getting us from 21% to 25% to 30%. It's all the other stuff. Do, do I Is that a fair assertion? Uh, correct. All that other spending, I think, is is important, but it's not making the budget. Uh, it's not driving the un- unsustainability of the budget in these uh, in the sort of projections in the out years. All right. So let's again let's focus then drill down on what we're not allowed to talk about, which is and we're not allowed. Uh, if we were either Republican or Democrat, we would be promising not to touch the things we're going to talk about touching. But let let's drill down more deeply. If we have programs, we have what's called a a congressional budget office that projects into the future. Surely they must have said, "Okay, uh, every every 50 year old is going to be 65 years old in 15 years. They should be able to anticipate these kinds of increases. Does the CBO who does these kind of projections understand what's happening? And should, let's say, everyone in Washington be able to understand that again, in 10 years, everyone's going to be 10 years older. Shouldn't we anticipate this budget busting, you know, blob that's going to eat the uh, the, the budget and the U.S. economy? Uh, you know, is this a, a secret hiding in plain sight? Uh, for those for folks who, who read CBO reports, which is maybe not as large of a constituency as I would like. Uh, it, this is, this is no secret. CBO has been telling Congress and the American public that these programs are unsustainable for, for decades now. Uh, if you go back to even the, the CBO report that came out on the budget in the year 2000, which is when we actually had budget surpluses, they still were saying that these, that these mandatory spending programs, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, were growing faster than the economy and that they ultimately would become unsustainable. And so this is this is something that we've known for a long time. The, there's just hasn't been the political will to uh, to address the address these sort of fundamental drivers. So we don't have the money to pay for our promises. So there's two things we can do: we can change our promises, or we can raise taxes. Now your paper goes into great detail, uh, several papers, which I found quite interesting. Uh, to our friends on the left, and uh, I think our listeners will know, I'm perhaps more uh, le- right-leaning and, and perhaps, though I believe in good governance, would like to keep constraints on government spending. So I- I'm going to take put the other hat on, and, and I'm going to I'm going to put uh, uh, the, my progressive hat on and, and play devil's advocate. If if voters have said to their representatives, don't touch uh, Social Security, don't touch Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know, steady she goes, surely in the richest country on earth and all these rich people, uh, can't we just raise taxes on the wealthy and those corporations that I've been told don't pay any taxes? 
surely in this country, we must have enough money to pay for all these programs. Tell me why I can't just raise, let's start with the rich. Why can't I just raise uh, taxes on uh, those making a lot of money a year? Well, I'll get there, but I want to address the first point uh, first is that these issue polls, when you ask people, uh, like, how should you balance the budget? They'll say, we want, I want you to increase spending and I want you to cut taxes at the same time. When you, when you pair these questions together and say, how should we pay for the benefits that we have? You get a little bit more internally consistent answers. But if you just, if you just focus on the benefits, of course, people are going to say, I want, I want higher spending. I want, I want more benefits. So you have to, you have to pair the, the, the sort of cost and the benefit together to get a sort of internally consistent answer. Uh, but I think there is still a big misunderstanding that the that the current levels of spending we have cannot be funded with just tax increases on on the rich. The President Biden has this famous pledge of not raising taxes on anyone earning over four hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, if you were to confiscate every dollar earned uh, over, the IRS cuts the data at five hundred thousand dollars. If you were to cut, if you were to ra- raise, t- uh, takes every dollar earned over five hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, you still couldn't cover the deficit we're going to have in a couple of years. Uh, so the the reality is, if you want the government we have today, yet alone a larger government in the future, taxes have to go up on on a majority of Americans and not just the the wealthy. I want to drill down in because I read a paper that you wrote that really stuck with me. Uh, you, as you say, you you measured how much total revenue, how much income those who make more than five hundred thousand dollars a year. If we were just to make it confiscate everything more than that five hundred, say okay, take that five hundred thousand, that's yours. Everything you make more than that, up to infinity, we're going to take that. If you add up all that revenue, the total amount of money those people earn is two trillion dollars a year. Our numbers. 32 trillion or you know deficits of a trillion or more mean that if we confiscated all the income from the wealthy above $500,000 it wouldn't balance our budget or it would just barely balance our budget and of course we we wouldn't do that we you couldn't confiscate all the money everybody would leave right so i mean it had devastating effects but what you're saying is that money isn't there it, correct there's not enough there's not enough money there and even if there was there's no there's as you as you just said there's no economically literate way to actually access every 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 one of those dollars. Uh, people eventually stop working or move, uh, and uh, and so we know that taxes have economic costs. And the higher the, those tax rates go, the, the the bigger the costs, and the harder it is to sort of extract that those last dollars. Okay, so uh, if we can't uh, tax our again, as you say, we all want more spending. Uh, but less taxes. So we the, we all agree the consensus is let's tax somebody else. If, if there's not enough money with the wealthy, and of course, if we start taxing them at a greater rate, their behavior changes, including either not working or, or leaving. Um, why can't we tax all these uh, corporations? Can't, don't uh, corporations get away with murder? I've been told they pay nothing. Couldn't couldn't we uh, put shoulder the burden on on their shoulders? Well, there's lots of problems with the numbers that show uh, corporations pay pay nothing, uh, and that I think that's probably a different uh, a different conversation. Corporations pay a significant amount of U.S. taxes and international taxes, uh, but the the who pays the tax um, in like who writes the check to the government and who actually bears the economic cost of the tax are two very different things. 
Uh, and if you look at the economic literature on the corporate income tax, you actually will find that uh, over the medium to long term, the cost of that tax actually falls on primarily on workers in the form of lower wages. Uh, and it's pretty simple why that is, is workers are the, the thing that's hardest to move. Capital can move to other countries. Uh, prices are are set pretty competitively. And so workers end up getting stuck uh, stuck with the bill. And uh, and so raising the corporate tax uh, tax rate is sort of self-defeating. It ultimately falls on 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 workers and doesn't hit the sort of uh, the fat cats or the these or whatever the caricature is of these of these large businesses. Well, that's a common theme in in Hubwonka. Uh, we've had guests on here that say uh, have also uh, supported your claim that. Uh, corporations don't pay taxes. Their consumers and their employees pay those taxes. You know, corporations are legal entities. Uh, all taxes fall to consumers and workers. So uh, you're essentially, by taxing corporations, you're taxing yourself. Uh, so we don't have, um, we can't tax the wealth. We can't tax uh, the corporations. Still, I know there's some progressive listeners out there saying, you know, wait a minute. Um, uh, we are relatively, we've heard we're a relatively low tax country. Uh, we're relatively low benefit country. All these wonderful uh, paradises, uh, OECD countries, European countries with lavish welfare states, they're spending a huge amount. Uh, their government is spending a huge amount of GDP. They're not running deficits like ours. Everybody seems to be happy. Why can't we just adopt that system? What would that look like? What what does uh, other systems, uh, other modern economies look like tax-wise relative to ours? So you're you're exactly right. The United States is a, a relatively low tax country compared to some of our biggest peers, especially in Europe, and uh, and I think that's ultimately a good thing. But this conversation of of sort of what to do with the deficit, how large should government be, uh, I think is is exactly right that we should be looking to Europe and we should be honest with the American people that if we want a European style social welfare state like uh, the one that we're that we're headed towards or or already have. Uh, we have to be prepared to pay taxes like they have in Europe. Uh, so not only do the do they have higher marginal income tax rates that apply to uh, to lower levels of income, they also have a value added tax, which is essentially like a, a national sales tax of on average twenty percent, uh, and that means that lower income people in Europe uh, pay about six thousand dollars more in taxes than a similar person would pay in the United States. And uh, middle upper middle middle upper class people pay about sixteen thousand dollars more in taxes each year um, than the same person would in the United States, and so that's the that's the reality that that I think politicians need to confront um, uh, confront voters with. That if you want big government, it's expensive, and everyone has to pay for it. So you're saying you essentially you can say pick pick the government you want, large services, large large taxes, or small services, small taxes. But be honest when you make these promises. Your paper points out the fact that in Europe, I mean, to put a finer point on it, um, the average wage, I think in this country, the average family income is fifty-five or sixty thousand um, dollars. But you have to have an extraordinary income, like five hundred thousand, or I think it's three hundred ninety-three thousand before you hit the um, highest uh, tax bracket of thirty-seven percent. What your what your paper points out is the average family income, the average family with the average income triggers the top tax marginal tax rate in most European countries or, or, or thereabouts, right? It, it would be instead of an average family paying right now, I think federal income tax is something like 20% for an average income. They would be paying 37%, right? Some, something of that nature, right? The, the, the average person is paying substantially more in tax. 
Exactly. And that's and how that bears out is that the United States has an incredibly progressive fiscal system. Uh, if you look just sort of looking at all at the taxes, not just the income tax, but payroll tax and, and the corporate income tax, the sort of wealthier folks in the United States pay a significantly larger share um, of, of the entire tax burden than than similar sort of similar uh, similarly situated country in in Europe would distribute their tax tax burden, uh, and so the the way that Europe funds their uh, their higher levels of spending is with a much flatter tax system that taxes um, sort of everyone at higher rates rather than just relying on uh, on sort of wealthy taxpayers. So, so for our progressive uh, listeners, what they should be saying is, please give me more benefits, and please, please substantially raise my taxes. I mean, it, you know, that's that's fair, fair to assert. Uh, or, or I'd say before you start asking for larger benefits, <laughs> let's let's fix the current the the current fiscal uh, fiscal situation, and then we can talk uh, about where to, where to go from there. But the current um, current level of spending is already unsustainable. So uh, what I like about your paper, again, what I like about Cato in, in general is, is nonpartisan, is libertarian leaning, so they don't have party allegiance to sort of, you know, steer their conclusions. Um, you do talk about the fact that really uh, this is a demographic phenomenon um, where more people are uh, a- aging into the benefits, into Social Security, into Medicare. Uh, no one's to blame. This is not the result of progressive uh, largesse. This is not the reg- Really, we've already said it's not a function of of tax cuts in the past, rather it's just you know people getting older. Uh, so it's a relatively large problem, um, but a relative. No one is to blame. Where would you start? Again, we're going to get into sort of policy, solu- pol- policy solutions based on the policy problems we have identified. When we talk about something, we can't have people stop getting older. Where do you see um, uh, opportunity if, if one were being honest and saying, look, let's let's look at these non-discretionary programs what would you which one looks most ripe for reform and uh, substantial improvement in our outlooks well you started by saying no one is to blame and i think congress is to blame like it's not it's not one party is to blame but our our elected representatives have let has let have let us down here and and i blame and i blame them uh, but it, really, we need to reform sort of all the the three major drivers. We need to reform Social Security, Medicare, and and Medicaid. And the first uh, place to I think to to start is to bring benefits in line with the amount of revenue that that's coming in. There's a whole bunch of ways that that could be done. Um, it, it's uh, but ultimately that's that's what that's where we have to end up. My colleague here uh, at Cato, Romina Bacha, uh, has been uh, proposing the idea of a BRAC-style com- uh, commission. And this is the BRAC commission was used to close military bases that were politically sensitive. They sort of put together a package proposal and Congress gets to vote it up or down. Uh, and I think something like that, that, um, that sort of takes the really complicated, hard decisions out of Congress is a plan is crafted by experts in the field, and then Congress gets to vote on it is a way to sort of get around some of these political difficulties and and create a system that is ultimately uh, more sustainable. But, uh, you anticipate my next question, which is, okay, you do say, um, look, I'm going to tackle Social Security, I'm going to tackle Medicaid, Medicare. Uh, how is it that even if you create a commission, ultimately, as you say, it's Congress to blame, but ultimately they have to have the courage to face the truth and give voters the truth. 
when voters don't want to hear the truth. If you create a, a Brack-like commission and you devise all these reforms for these um, non-discretionary programs, wouldn't any congressman who votes for it be committing uh, political suicide? I, I would hope not. Uh, the, I, I do think that the messaging here is, is really has been fraught historically. But the closer we get to the insolvency dates where the trust funds that are underlying the system start running out, uh, if Congress doesn't act, benefits automatically get cut for everyone. And so the way that voters and politicians need to start thinking about these programs is that doing nothing is a benefit cut. And the sooner we act on reforms, the less dramatic those reforms have to be. The longer we have, the more time we have to sort of get the new system up and running uh, and phase people people into the, into the system. Uh, and so now is the time to, I mean, 20 years ago was was the real time to <laughs> to to start reforms but now is now now is much better than tomorrow or or next decade and so uh and so that's that's sort of how i hope that uh, folks in congress will start thinking about these issues um well we are uh, now i think almost exactly uh, 6 months away from 2024 which is officially a presidential election year and you know parties are going to sort of try to shape their message do you see any green shoots of uh let's say uh, fiscal responsibility. Uh, at the very least, um, massive new spending programs should be off the table, largely based on the fact that we can't pay for the massive old spending programs. But do we see any green shoots of someone aspiring to say, look, let's not make any normative judgments. You know, let's figure out how we pay for what we already committed to. You know, if, if the government, if the American people want the government they've voted for, let's uh, make sure the American people want to pay for the government they uh, voted for. Is anybody uh, left to talk about uh, fiscal responsibility? Certainly no, uh, no prominent voices are talking about it uh, in that way. Uh, I, I do think that there's, there's hope. We saw that the sort of around the, um, the debt ceiling debate, uh, Republicans were at least giving lip service again to caring about the, the size of the debt and the deficit. You can debate about the sort of merits of the ultimate deal we got, but at least uh, one party is starting to to, to talk about these issues again um, after uh, after a little hiatus. So I can only hope that that conversation uh, continues to grow and that more people continue to 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 get worried about the size of the debt and the increasing deficit. Um, but until we're we're willing to have that that honest conversation about the biggest drivers of the problem um, and and the costs that that would that would have not only on the, the amount of taxes you'd have to pay, but the economic costs of those of those taxes. Um, uh, I think that that that's really where the conversation needs to needs to move. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. Your your writing is superb, and you you what you offer readers is lots of links to the uh, effectively the assertions you make. You know the CBO projections, uh, relative uh, tax rates in other countries, our where we fall as far as how pro progressive our income tax is. All of this really fine work, fine research. Our listeners, I hope we've piqued their interest because some will say, look, I think yeah, I think we can tax our way out of this, or I think you know, we don't need reform. You know, I want to see the proof. Where can our listeners find your writing and, and learn more and, and go deeper onto it in the subject if, if they care to? Well, well, thank you. And I, I distribute uh, all of my, my sort of the writings when they come out through my Substack, um, which is called Liberty Taxed. You can uh, find it. You can Google it and find me there. Otherwise, you can find all my work at cato.org uh, as well. 
So, uh, you know, Adam Michelle from uh, Cato, um, I, I recommend our listeners look you up, find you, follow you. Uh, I think this debate will get deeper. I hope it does. I hope we don't wait till, uh, you know, uh, f- we are forced to uh, to uh, curb benefits and uh, we uh, approach it with wide eyes and informed. Um, but again, we're we're maybe we're just a candle in in the darkness here. So uh, thank you for taking the time to explain this very complex issue for our listeners. I hope uh, at least uh, they've learned a little bit and and, and get some sobriety out of this uh, out of this uh, I think important topic. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Fun conversation. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support this podcast and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find us if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me about subjects for future podcast episodes, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.